Design is a system of knowledge, design is a system of interrogation, design is a system of critique that uses material and visual culture as its methods is deeply effective. The further you march on in time, the less certain things are. I definitely hope it's provocative. There is not just one place that we're going to. Welcome to Uncertainty Playground, a new podcast about design research from the London College of Communication. I'm the Dean of Design, Dr Nikki Ryan, and I'll be your host for this series. Uncertainty Playground is the title of our exhibition for the London Design Festival. It's inspired this series. We'll be giving you a taster of what's going on here during the festival with cutting-edge displays within the university and outside in the surrounding neighbourhood. We'll also be discussing the work and ideas behind the show, which consider how design can define, address and make meaning from the ambiguities and uncertainties that we currently face. The exhibition is comprised of four shows which explore the role of design research and practice in imagining, critiquing and shaping futures. In each episode of this series, we'll feature one of the Uncertainty Playground shows and investigate a different aspect of the work of the design school. In this first episode, we're looking at critical design and digital futures through the Possible Probable World show. I've been speaking to two of the people involved in the show, Tobias Revel and Dr Georgina Voss, about how technology and society shape each other and our future, and how critical design questions the very notions of speculation, progress and futurity. My name is Tobias Revel and I'm the course leader for MA Interaction Design Communication at LCC. Um, I'm also uh, part of the company and research consultancy Strange Telemetry with Georgina Voss and um, I'm an artist and researcher. I'm Georgina Voss. Um, I'm a senior lecturer and subject lead in contextual and theoretical studies for interaction design and visual communication at London College of Communication. I'm also one of the co-founders and directors of the research studio Strange Telemetry and also an artist and by training a technology anthropologist. I'm in the Dirty Studio, which is a prototyping and maker space. When you look around, you can see there's lots of hardware, tools, benches. It's a really chaotic space, but a very interesting one. And I wondered, Tobias, about its importance in terms of the creation of the exhibition you're going to be doing for the London Design Festival. The, the work we're going to be doing for the London Design Festival is going to be very much looking at critical design and digital uh, futures. But part of that is not only looking at the theory around that, which is quite intense and quite uh, well established, but also exercising that theory through practice. So the role it plays as a kind of representative space in the process of the research we do here and the work we do here is central. We have got the dirty studio here. And again, I've got a screw that I'm fiddling with my hands. We've got a little plug socket. We've got the electronics bench. But then you walk through the doors and you're into the space where the desktop computers are, where the digital work's being done as well. And that's, you know, you can see through the windows there. And those two things are not separate, but part of an integrated and co-shaped process as well. I noticed you have a computer rendering for the show that you're developing um, for the research group around possible, probable world. Could you explain to me your thinking behind that and how the group came together with this particular idea? And and what that rendering represents in visual terms. Because of the idea, the overarching theme of the Uncertainty Playground, we very much thought about theme parks and experiences and spaces where play and kind of um, adventure happens. (laughs) 
So looking at something like a theme park map, but also looking for something with theoretical basis. So what I've thought about with the space is if you imagine the futures cone, which is a, a theory object, it's a cone um, that represents how over time uncertainty increases, push through the space horizontally as an object and then cut into slices that are then physicalized as potential futures. These spaces, these physicalized bits of the cone are then going to be our um, framework for what's going to be displayed and the type of work that's going to be produced and put into the show. It's a crossover of the futures cone, which is a central part of all futures thinking, I think. But then also the theme park map, where it's divided into its zones and areas, depending on, you know, sort of a theme or specialization. And that's also what we're looking at. And then next to that, in some of the side spaces, we also want to show some of um, the research and methodology that goes into this area. So we're going to have um, hopefully a table or shelf arrangement where we can show some of the writing and texts produced by staff and researchers, um, as well as the things that we're reading and looking at that we think are important and some of the projects that we're working on in the university and in our, in our daily jobs. One of the things that's quite interesting about the cone is that it challenges the idea that there is a set linear future. That there is a path that we are definitively marching towards and te technology will definitely get us there and it's going to be great. As Tobias says, one of the things that the cone shows by nature of its expansion is that the further you march on in time, the less certain things are. So rather than there being this one future, what you have is a, a probable future, yeah, maybe, but then also some possible futures as well and potential futures as well. And the further you get out from the centre, the more these waves start to ripple out and so you're getting into kind of slightly strange spaces, which aren't necessarily, again, easy to see, easy to predict, but allow you to kind of consider there is not just one place that we're going to. Can you say how that maps onto the theme park idea? Because that's quite interesting. Often we think about theme parks in terms of Disney and that kind of commercial aspect. So how does that work with the kind of futures, your speculative futures you're looking at here? If you think about a theme park as an interesting artifact of modernity and, and culture, it's kind of, you know, Baudrillard writes about it as a simulacra. But what I've always really enjoyed about the theme park is the map. And this idea that you can take a space and divide it into these different imaginary zones. We wanted to do the same thing here and embrace the idea that you could have within the same space contradictory futures and contradictory and, and perhaps massively varied versions of the future that are kind of all in the same physical space, but are allowed to be separated by this idea of being zoned. So they're very different futures. There may be some that are quite optimistic, some that are a little less optimistic, some that are looking at a radical kind of technological change, some that are looking at radical sort of social change. But the idea is that they can all be examined next to each other in the space in the same way as, you know, a sort of 10-year-old greedily sort of drools over a theme park map and imagines all the different places they want to go and, you know, what the worthy rides are and why some are better than others. One of the things that theme parks do very well is they allow you to experience unreal or strange things in a safe space, well, a comparatively safe space. There are kind of different experiences, different things you'll see, different different feelings and engagements and embodiments that can come with something out that is taken outside of the everyday, in scare quotes, normal world. The theme park is often a place which is um, safe, as you say, but also quite controlled. There is surveillance there as well. So how does that work in terms of the kind of interaction that the various publics that um, encounter the show will experience? Well, they won't be surveilled. <laughs> oh, <my God. laughs> I definitely hope it's provocative and it's definitely challenging. And perhaps, you know, what I've often found very often with this type of work is it's most interesting when people are infuriated by it, when people are sort of like, you know, but I, I disagree entirely. I don't want this or I'm not, you know, I don't think this is possible or, or, or whatever it is. It's about saying, let's use design to engage you in things that are deeply going to affect your life, that like the future shape of 
Elephant and Castle, London, Europe, whatever it is, and materialize that in front of you so that within the space of this university, which is ultimately a space of play and learning in a, in a sense, you can play with those ideas safely. Can you say a bit more about how the zones will be articulated? You said there's five zones. <coughs> no. Because <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, so, so if, you, if you think about the futures cone, it has two dimensions. One, of course, is time, and that starts from the left to the right, and the tighter end of the cone is where we are now. And the further we go down, the more we're into the future, and that may be 50 years, 100 years, or just an unknown kind of unspecified time in the future. And then, of course, the other dimension is its height, which is where probability and possibility sort of scale out. The way these things will be instantiated is going to be really interesting because of the way that the different staff and researchers here are working. We've got a huge range of different media, materials, methodologies to play with, and that's going to be quite an exciting thing to explore. But what I, what I will say is that there is going to be a, a narrative from the front of the exhibition where we're at the, the sharp end of the cone to the back, where we're seeing maybe the first part is, you know, in, in five years' time, and we're maybe looking at quite a close, well-rendered future, certainly in this area, where we can make some pretty safe kind of predictions about what the world might be, but there's still a huge amount of uncertainty over, you know, who knows what the state of geopolitics is going to be in five years. And as you progress through the... the um, through the kind of parts, you know, the five or six parts, you get to more and more uncertainty, more and more washiness, more and more kind of vagueness and provocation and um, speculation. You'll certainly get a sense of a narrative of time progressing and these speculations becoming more and more into the range of the possible, bordering on the impossible, which is the outer edge of the cone. Georgina, I wonder if you could say something more about the research group, because part of your role here is to lead research in the area of critical design and digital futures. And so I thought perhaps you could unpack for us some of these different terms, so critical design, speculative design, design fictions, which often kind of come together, and explain a little about what they are and their histories. What's kind of quite commonly thought of, as, or most popularly known of, as critical and speculative design comes out of a programme run at the Royal College of Art, uh, but the RCA by uh, Tony Dunn and Fiona Raby. This was originally the um, Interaction Design Programme. They inverted it into the Design Interaction Programme, and it ran, ran for the course of around a decade until comparatively recently. What this particular course did was it built on a, a much larger heritage of design practice, radicalism research, to consider how the tools of design it could themselves be used to critique design practices, where they sat politically, materially, what they did. So it's not about the object itself, it's not a proposal for a car that flies, but it's about a world in which there are flying cars. And so the design becomes a tool for thinking about the world where the design exists. And that's what was often called a diegetic prototype, which is then at the root of design fiction. Um, and design fiction, I would say, isn't necessarily a field, it's more of a toolkit. So, you know, adverts in a way are design fictions. They are using design to, to, to tell you a story and a narrative. They, they are a way of speculating about a lifestyle or a world. Very often in design education, the designer is promoted as somehow neutral and alien from the work they do. You know, they produce the CAD file, what happens to it then in the world is not their problem. You know, I'm, the I'm just a designer, you know. And I think what speculative and critical approaches do for practitioners, researchers and students is get them to think, now actually you're a political agent in the world. Many of the critics of critical design ask what is critical about it. Can you say a bit more about that? They talk about the literature as being somewhat underdeveloped and perhaps it's a discipline which requires more rigour. How would you respond to that? 
Well, no, it's entirely true. It's a new field. It was explored a lot at the Royal College of Art, as Georgina mentions, and, and that was a success to the point where I don't think you could go around the world and find a curriculum worth its salt that's not looking at speculative or critical methods in some way through it. There's also wider questions here, I think, about... Um, well, there's lots of issues around the decolonization of design and things full stop anyway that need to be addressed, whether it's speculative and critical design or not. I think one of the things that's quite interesting about the way this field approach what it is, is quite simultaneously quite a baby, quite floppy, unformed thing, which yet sits against decades of radical design practice and centuries of foresight and speculation and consideration as well. Um, so there's this kind of thing about how these things get integrated or instantiated into practices more fully in their own way as well, rather than it being held up as a separate thing. So that again, if we're thinking about what this looks like for certain forms of design practice, how does the speculative approach assist that? How does it help students in that way? Rather than it being something that's kind of lumped on or bolted onto the side, like some kind of strange, ugly um, externality. But what are the kind of the actual tools that come with it, which is, come, Nikki, to come back to your original question, of allowing students and allowing practitioners to think critically, to take a step back and think about the politics, the wider systems, the cultural elements, and, and their own agency in this system as well, rather than it just being a thing of designing interesting stories. Another point, I guess, about the rigor is the ongoing debate, which certainly I'm in the middle of with my PhD, about what is this relationship between research and practice? You know, how do I make things like you know, curation work or, or exhibition work or commissions a valid form of research that's legible to a university and to the academic kind of world. Um, and I think that's something that critical design as a radical practice said, well, we're not going to jump in bed and do sort of sociological work and just sort of sit there and write papers and say, this is critical design. They said, no, we're going to do practice. We're going to put stuff in galleries, in the street. I guess there's also the distinction that Dun Raby made between design, which is affirmative of global capitalism and the sense that critical design is something other than that. And therefore, it's almost taking a kind of moral position. And in a sense, I guess some of the questions and critics have been about how do we evaluate that? Who is evaluating what comes out? Out, therefore of critical design. I think we're all made up of different parts and I think the important thing that Dunarabi and sort of critical design in its current form still tries to teach is not you must now agree with this alternative politics it's just saying you have to learn that you have politics and I don't think it was a ever meant as a sort of political movement in any way I think it was just meant of saying designers you are not objective actors in this system you are creating the material that forms uh, capitalistic and cultural values right um, and whether you then you acknowledge that and say, cool, got it, I'm going to I'm still going to go and make apps. That's fine. You know, but it's acknowledging that you are a political agent, you are a political actor, that design is probably the biggest political interface in the world. And will there be opportunities within the show to engage the public in those sorts of debates? <clears throat> yes. <laughs> um, we're hoping to put together uh, lots of events that will be open to the public, of course, in order for them um, to, to come in and see debates or, or whatever it is, or presentations, hopefully from people involved in creating the futures in this area, as well as designers and artists who are critiquing it. Um, I'm also hoping that the exhibition is somewhat interactive, right? That it allows not only for, for people to have sort of, you know, the usual interaction with uh, interaction design, but also in ways to leave an impression on it. You know, um, thinking about, for instance, the back wall being a space where people could think about, you know, where this ultimate cone opens up their possible and probable futures and maybe instantiate them in some simple way on the back wall. So I think it's really important as LCC situated in this rapidly changing space, you know, Elephant and Castle, biggest area of redevelopment in London, London itself, massive change, Britain, Europe, the whole kind of bullseye that ends in this possible, probable future world that we, we make sure that Elephant and Castle and, and London and Europe are allowed to leave an impression on us as well as us provoking them.
You talked about in your practice how you worked with the government. I wonder if you could say a bit more about what other applications um, this research group could have to wider publics. Thinking about the kind of political things that are happening at the moment, the world is changing so rapidly. What is the significance of this beyond LCC and the University of the Arts? One of the trends that greatly concerns me in the last sort of 10 years, and admittedly I haven't been in practice as, even as long as that, I was still in education, is design being looked at by industry and government as somehow a hold-all solution to everything. You get a group of designers in, they solve your problem, boom, job done, let's move on with our lives. Designers will be the first to admit that solutions aren't solutions. They are just kind of suggestions. They're, they're, they're ways of thinking through a problem. There may be a patch in the short term, but they're not gonna fix larger social and cultural issues. Is there a better way of integrating design into these processes, which is absolutely necessary since all these processes are designed, you know, whether they're government systems and services or corporate innovations or whatever it is. But can that be done in a way that isn't saying, right, we'll solve the problem and everything will be fine, but more saying, no, we're here to interrogate the problem. Design as a system of knowledge, design as a system of interrogation, design as a system of critique that uses material and visual culture as its methods is deeply effective. We know from practice that it works. It works at connecting people with ideas, it works at speaking to large audiences, and it works at problematizing in a really strong way. Um, and how that is then applied, especially in this world where speculative and critical methods are pretty well established um, and accepted in industry and in, in academia, um, even though, of course, they're still being critiqued. What is the next stage of that? What about if we start to actually apply this across the board, not just kind of in the classroom or in the, in the, in the research lab? Well, that was my next question, actually. When he, the way you characterise the role of the designer, how do you see the future for our students and the kind of jobs and career possibilities that they'd have? <laughs> <laughs> the designer in five years' time will have be radically different from the designer five years ago. Um, there are very real threats. Obviously, the, the shifting geopolitics is going to change the way that people work increasing precariarity is going to start affecting the way that people work and also design is going to be one of the biggest industries affected by automation as that comes in. Um, I think interdisciplinarity, which is something that George I'm sure is able to talk about at a sort of much higher level than I, is going to be super important to designers. I don't think many design graduates now are going to go and sit in an office full of designers and do design. They're going to be sat next to policymakers, business people, scientists, researchers and developing what designers are good at, which is communication, but developing a way to communicate effectively with all those different fields and get them to speak to each other and to work together to problematize and critique and actually build valuable solutions to problems is going to be basically the role of the designer, I think. You know, I don't think it's Photoshop monkeys anymore. You know, I think that's going to be done automatically. One of the really interesting things, I think, that is riding through education at the moment and coming out into science as well, into politics, um, into practice, is not necessarily a collapse of disciplinary silos, but an understanding that these things have to work together and grind together with each other. Um, from the perspective of someone who started off with a biochemistry degree, went into science technology studies, then did anthropology, then kind of did a kind of hard left turn, um, Furiosa style across the desert, into art and design, um, and is tonight flying to Rotterdam to play with uh, robots that weld steel. Um, I can only endorse the value of interdisciplinary mess. It's not only is it fun, but it's valuable. And you, you suddenly pull back into a much larger systems perspective. While there are pots of knowledge, I can't necessarily do a Southern blot anymore. My knowledge of like the structures of DNA is not what it used to be 15 years ago. You can start to see how these systems operate and how you can lock things together to get things done kind of effectively in an interesting way. What a designer does is George has sort of brought out changes all the time. You may be working with different type of clients. Your version of what design is may shift from writing briefs to producing renders to making physical artifacts to working in huge teams to working in small teams. And I think, you know, the idea of 
the designer, you know, a future designer is going to be a constantly moving target. And any design graduate and any design researcher or practitioner is going to have to accept that they're going to have to put on different clothes and different skins as time goes on. And not just learn new skills, which is a very tangible and thankfully easy thing to do these days because of the internet largely, but also just re-identify constantly, constantly refresh what is your value, what are you doing, what is your politics again as well. As well as having the chance to explore Joseph Voros's Futures Cone, there will be many other future visions and events for the public to enjoy, open from the 16th of September. Please subscribe to Uncertainty Playground on iTunes, and don't forget to rate and review us if you're enjoying this and share it with your network. Coming up in episode two, I'll be looking at sustainability and social innovation through the Spark Show, which will be taking over some of the green spaces inside LCC and beyond. Thanks to Professor David Toop of LCC, who composed the original music for this podcast, and to my producer, Lucy Dearlove. This was a Chalk and Blade production for LCC. LCC.